Welcome to the Hopeful Economics Podcast, a ministry of the United Church of Canada, proudly supported by Mission and Service and New Church Ministry of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in the United States and Canada. With an incredible lineup of speakers, you'll dive deep into the relationship between social enterprise and faith. You'll learn about the economic impact of churches and how to pitch your community of faith to form new partnerships. Hopeful Economics is a way of looking at the world of assets in abundance and making them work for everyone. This content originated from the Hopeful Economics Unconference, a virtual event in March of 2021. Mark your calendars for March 3rd and 4th of 2022 to participate in the next Hopeful Economic Unconference. Social Enterprises Role in System Change. You already know about social enterprise as you are a social purpose organization, but are you part of the system change? This outlines some of the major changes in the world and some of the biggest challenges that we are making. How are we part of the bigger picture? Are we part of it? Should we be? Wayne Miranda is the social finance investment readiness lead for McConnell Foundation. Hello everyone, and welcome to the session on social enterprises role in systemic change. Um, my name is Wayne Miranda. It's a privilege to join you at this uh, hopeful economics unconference this week. Um, I'm actually joining you from Toronto on, on Turtle Island. Um, working on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wenat people. Um, this is Dish with One Spoon territory. Uh, this is an agreement made between the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to share and protect this land that uh, they have stewarded over millennia, and recognizing that we all eat with one spoon from one common bowl and, and we must ensure that that common bowl is never empty and that there are no knives at the table, meaning that uh, we share this responsibility to care for the land and creatures um, sharing it and, and to keep the peace. And now of course, this land is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. Um, and so my story in social enterprise and systemic change really begins in the uh, early 2000s um, when I was very engaged in international development. And for anyone who has heard about international development stories or, or failure stories, um, you have probably heard of these dilapidated hand pumps that are riddled the, you know, in the landscape of Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and studying this problem in, in Canada, um, I had the privilege of visiting uh, and working in Malawi for four months and then moving to Ghana um, for a number of years. And you know, it was all true, and it's kind of heartbreaking to see these broken, dilapidated hand pumps that were installed by funders like CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency, as it was called back then, now known as Global Affairs Canada. Um, you know, using taxpayer dollars money, and and these hand pumps were meant to provide clean water to underprivileged, uh, marginalized communities, um, and they were in disrepair just within a few years. And um, as, a, as an engineer or trained as an engineer, um, you know, this was really problematic. And, and, and I think 
it really calls into question the entire philosophy of international development in the 70s and 80s and even beyond, um, that one can't just assume a, a direct intervention like technology transfer solves the problem. It's easy for engineers to just you know, go in and dig a well and build a borehole, um, but it really calls upon us to think at a systems level. Um, and one needs to think about supply chains. So where are the repair parts coming from? Where, where are the skilled technicians going to um, be trained and how are they going to get out into these communities to repair uh, and maintain the hand pumps? What might be a sustainable model to provide that type of continuous service? Who pays for that? Um, and when I think of, you know, where has a lot of thinking been done in developing supply chains, um, well, the private sector and business comes to mind um, and, and hence sort of social enterprise. Um, and so for me, it has always been um, the beginning of, you know, what is a real problem faced by real people and by Mother Earth and back into what are some problem uh, promising solutions, rather, what are some promising solutions to solve that problem? And so for me, social enterprise towards this broader systems change has always been a multi-decade pursuit. And after moving to Ghana in, in the uh, 2008 timeframe, um, my own story kind of evolves into launching Growth Mosaic, um, which is now a B corporation. And it was always meant to be what I would call a social purpose business or a social enterprise, you could call it. Um, and this really, you know, again, it was stumbled into launching this business. Um, it really stemmed out of my dissatisfaction with having worked with local government from the very rural through to district, regional, national, multinational, you know, ultimately sitting on sector working groups, coordinating the uh, development of the agriculture value chain and, and system um, in the region. And just really realizing that some of these complex systems, you know, navigating them is, is just impossible and, and a lot of the systems are broken. Um, and so I looked out into the landscape and realized, you know, who is doing the best work in uh, agriculture development? And when you care about the poor in sub-Saharan Africa, you care about agriculture because these are agrarian economies. Um, and so I looked out and did a landscape and um, realized, okay, well, there's local consultants that are working with small and medium enterprises that are in the agriculture sector value chains. Um, but they're pretty expensive, though they do have a lot of great credentials and MBAs and lots of experience. Um, on the flip side, there's there's business schools. So you know, very promising, young, talented uh, MBA students. They're often free, um, but you know, there's always a downside to that. Um, they tend to be short-term. They would be volunteering. Um, as a result, you know, the accountability isn't quite there. Uh, so quality tends to suffer and, and the engagement's just not really long enough to create the type of long-term change that is going to be needed in some of these systems. Um, there's incubators and accelerators, um, but they often force these entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that are running these agricultural businesses um, to leave their farm where all the magic happens or to leave their communities where, where all the activity happens to come into a centralized incubator facility uh, which doesn't quite work for them, you know, and then there's online platforms, but you tend to need to already be ready to engage uh, with, with those platforms. Uh, there's not really a investment readiness or there's not really a uh, 
preparedness stage to help you work through that, uh, to make use of the online platforms. Um, there's NGOs and volunteer sending organizations, but for one reason or another, there is just something that, you know, there is a strength to it, but a fundamental issue that was not resolving this, this problem. Um, and so I stumbled into this thing called impact investing and realized that the private sector was actually doing you know, some really great work investing into the sectors uh, for both social and environmental mission, but also for financial return. And when I was speaking to the investors, I realized, uh, well, their biggest issue is actually promising investment opportunities. Um, and so I launched Growth Mosaic in, in response to some of those models that were not really working well. Um, so Growth Mosaic was a locally driven um, for-profit for, for but low-profit margin um, social purpose business. Um, so it was structured as a, as a, as a business. Um, ultimately, we became a B corporation um, and uh, it was locally driven. So we recruited out of local universities um, and it was meant to be a direct accountable model to paying clients. So the organizations that we would work with would directly pay for our services and we would offer a performance-based revenue model. So when and if we actually create impact with you, be it raising an investment or, or growing your enterprise, then you would pay on a performance-based measure. So there's kind of some of these innovations embedded within it. And we've always taken a ecosystem building approach. And so it was you know, open source from, from day zero. Um, so you know, 10 years ago or so, when we really got started, um, the landscape was fairly nascent. Um, there was only a handful of investors. There's only a handful of uh, handful of um, organizations kind of doing venture building or or some of the uh, investment facilitation or market building work. Um, but today, you know, through you know, not not to say that we're completely attributable to, attributed to all of the success in the ecosystem. Um, but, you know, I can point to some of the organizations that came to learn about what our model was doing and created tens of millions of dollars of transactions or um, have launched new enterprises using this similar model. Um, and now there's a you know, sort of flourishing ecosystem to the point where um, we can actually scale back and go pioneer in, in other ways. And so great, you know, we've, we've kind of shared a little story about what a social enterprise can do to really bolster a new ecosystem. Um, and that's happening, you know, 4,000 miles across uh, the ocean in a place called Ghana. Um, but other mainstream examples of social enterprise really influencing systems change. Um, and my mind goes to, you know, business. Um, and I think of electric vehicles. Um, and I think of some of the early attempts at electric vehicles um, in your sort of top left-hand corner here is a picture of one of the earliest versions of an electric vehicle from the 1800s. And of, of course, there's been many versions thereafter, but never really took off. And, and at one point there was even this you know, kind of documentary around you know, who killed the electric car. And it goes through a whole bunch of different scenarios as to where, you know, what might've gone wrong. Um, and we've now sort of more recently um, come to know about Tesla's strategy, combining this really smart marketing tactic um, to buy the time that's needed to make the technology more effective, more efficient, more affordable. And so, um, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk, for all their faults, um, had a really brilliant strategy to um, build an electric vehicle 
that was aspirational. So they started with the Roadster. Um, it was a premium product for premium market. Um, there's only a handful of people um, who would you know, be willing to pay for a sports car of this nature. Um, but they took the profits from selling the Roadster and plowed it into building um, the Model S. Um, and so, you know, Model S is now a little bit more affordable, um, more functional, um, but it's still not quite the, you know, the everyday, every person type of vehicle. And so they're taking the profits from the, uh, from the Model S, I think I got the models right, um, and plowing that into the Model 3, the, the sort of more affordable, um, more geared to like an everyday person, but, you know, still room to improve their um, and now what that's doing is really um, bolstering the entire electric vehicle marketplace. Um, and so you have major auto manufacturers from Toyota to Ford, General Motors, Honda, to some of the, even the uh, more luxurious models, um, from Porsche to Jaguar, um, all sort of announcing or making moves or making sort of public commitments to go electric. Um, and so, you know, of course, you can kind of question cause and effect, and, and am I calling Tesla a social enterprise? Not really, but I, but I think it is a really interesting case study worth digging deeper into on how business or how social enterprise or how enterprise can galvanize the ingredients needed to influence an entire sector. Um, and was Tesla solely responsible? Most, most you know, highly unlikely, um, but certainly strongly correlated and has contributed to shifting the system from the inefficient internal combustion engine, you know, carbon emitting engines to more electric drive change. And, and certainly, you know, electric vehicle is not the, the magic bullet that's going to solve climate change, um, but it's a step in the right direction. So I think, you know, we talked a little bit about some small examples in, in Ghana and some sort of larger maybe case studies we're digging into in the electric vehicle market, but let's just kind of back up a step and let's just kind of think about well, what exactly is social change and systems change in particular. Um, and just kind of establish some shared language um, so that we can talk through some more uh, examples. Um, so this is a, you know, the domain of social enterprise and system change can just have frustratingly inaccessible language. So I'm hoping that we can explore this topic together in just like very plain terms. Um, but I think of system change as a few different factors. And this is a, a framework or a graphic from FSG. But I think of system change as influencing policies. Um, it could be changing power dynamics in an ecosystem between different players. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that you're trying to create another um, type of model within the system. It's that you're working on all of the different models that are present within an ecosystem. Um, you can be influencing the different resource flows. You could be influencing the different um, industry standards or practices. And eventually, ultimately, I think what you're trying to lead to is getting to mindset change or um, what they would call in this model, mental models. What are our value sets? Um, what are our priorities? Um, and those are some of the elements of systems change. So when I'm referring to that, you can think about sort of that in more um, tangible, but also just kind of plain language. Similarly, um, what does social enterprise actually mean? And, and you, know, so, you know, like like systems change, it's really difficult to define, or rather, 
there's many different ways to define social enterprise, and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but I tend to like this model from an organization called S4ES, and they kind of call out three key elements of a social enterprise, which is that it's, first of all, it needs to be mission-driven, um, that there is a social, cultural, and or environmental mission at its core. So it's not an afterthought. It's not a corporate social responsibility program, or it's not a charitable mission. It's, it's, um, it, it is a social environmental uh, purpose for their existence. And secondly, it is a business. So it's not, not, not for profit. Um, it is using the sale of goods or services to internally generate earned income. Um, and if they happen to generate a surplus, which is part of the mission, um, they're going to reinvest and pile back those profits to further progress their mission. So when I'm referring to social enterprise, you can kind of think of those three things. And, and, and so we're not calling, say, the Walmarts of the world, although they may have uh, you know, a business and they may be reinvesting part of its profits. Um, but they're, you know, the core of Walmart is not necessarily to pursue a social, environmental, or cultural mission at its core. So let's look at some real examples of social enterprise influencing this broader system. So I think of renewable energy again, and here's kind of just a you know set of logos that have spun off each other. So TREC, which is Toronto Renewable Energy Cooperative. Um, began in the early 2000s or maybe even earlier, really leading in using systems change tools for community-driven renewable energy transition. Um, and you know, it has Toronto in the name, but just given one of its cooperative principles to help other co-ops. Um, they've spun off so much great infrastructure and, 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 and other models as well. Uh, so for instance, they've spun off uh, Windshare, which is um, yes, renewable energy, but specifically for community members to collectively invest in wind power. Similarly, they've spun off solar share, so enabling community-driven um, investment into solar renewable energy. Um, so building solar farms on building rooftops and uh, um, and in microgrids. And those two models have influenced or created a path or other cooperatives and, and other renewable energy models. Um, so from other particular sectors in the renewable area, so ZooShare, basically a biodigesting cooperative, um, to CoPower, another um, renewable energy um, entity, uh, which uh, coincidentally is now actually owned by Van City Community Investment Bank, which is affiliated with Canada's largest credit union, Van City. Um, and so now you're really getting into like influencing mainstream, um, large institutional capital, you know, Van City's, I think, deposits of something like $28 billion. Um, SolarShare is also influencing the, the spawning of co-energy, um, which is Ottawa-based, and, 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 and I'm sure many other cooperative uh, renewable energy organizations. And most recently, Toronto Renewable Energy Co-op um, has spun off Tapestry. And so they've realized in, in sort of working in this cooperative sector and working with so many community-driven uh, investment models, um, there needed to be this back-end system. Uh, how do you prepare for a community bond campaign, for instance? How do you administer the community bonds once they are raised? And so Tapestry Community Capital is a model that's spun off. 
um, to help other co-ops, other organizations, nonprofits, charities, social purpose enterprises um, to, to do community bonds. Um, and so they're entering into completely new domains in um, affordable housing, um, in, in community services, and they're expanding asset mobilization. So they are raising millions of dollars um, in the art sector and the disability sector. So a great example of one model, one organization, one social enterprise, Toronto Renewable Energy Cooperative, influencing a much broader systems change. And another example is the Center for Social Innovation. So beginning, um, oh, I can't remember, over a decade ago now, um, with just 13 or 14 pioneers who decided that, you know, let's not compete for the limited resources that are out there, but let's actually just by default collaborate. Um, and it might've been as simple as sharing a photocopier and it grew into sharing entire space. So let's co-locate, let's share space, let's gain efficiencies on overhead costs. And let's also accrue some of those side benefits from the energy, the chance encounters, the sharing, the learning, the, um, the collective advocacy work that can be done. Um, and, and so the Center for Social Innovation, best known for now co-working models, um, is probably one of the pioneers of co-working um, in Canada, if not in North America. Um, and co-working, of course, is now very popular. Um, CSI itself has open sourced its model. It spawns Center for Social Innovation in New York City. Um, it's helped spawn innovation works in London. Um, I know the model uh, was pulled from in launching 312 Main Street and um, perhaps even uh, other models. I don't want to speak for them, um, but I'm sure it's influenced many. Um, and some of the members of the Center for Social Innovation are, are quite notable from the Pemmet Institute, uh, you know, sort of a think tank and, and a bit of a do tank in um, climate change advocacy and research to David Suzuki Foundation being a member, well.ca, which is an ethical marketplace, Ontario um, Nonprofit Network, um, and all, you know, if you imagine all of the work that ONN, Ontario Nonprofit Network, has done, uh, through being part of originally a CSI member and now um, uh, the, the powerhouse that it is today. Um, and as well, CSI is home to TechSoup Canada, which is working with some 40 to 45,000 nonprofits and charities across Canada, enabling uh, a digital transformation and, and technology adoption to make their operations more effective and more efficient. Um, to today, now host of social innovation. Canada. Um, so an in, in infrastructure of many different nodes, Pan-Canada, Pan so from coast to coast to coast, um, where it's really trying to develop a, a social infrastructure through which coordination can happen, um, learning can be shared, uh, opportunities can be um, acted on together. And so these are just two examples of single organizations, but really collective and, and sort of, you know, mind sh mindset shifting organizations that are changing much broader systems. And, and so just lastly, I'll come to, you know, what might this mean for you? Um, kind of the so what, and, you know, if you're thinking about social enterprise, if you're thinking about systems change, um, what do I want to leave you with? Um, I would say three, deep, three key questions here. Like, what's the system 
that you really seek to change. You know, who's who in that system? Who's doing what? What are they doing? What are their incentives? What are their missions? Um, how do they interact? Um, what are the communication mechanisms, feedback loops, um, you know, triggers? What patterns are emerging? What behavior are you noticing? What um, results are you seeing over time? What are those patterns and why? What's actually driving those patterns? Um, so really try to fall in love with the problem here and really try to understand what that system is. And from there, you can try to develop, you know, what is your theory of change? Um, what is the intended impact that you seek? Um, where is the system today is question one. Where do you want the system to be is question two. Um, and how do you get there? What is the path? What are some milestones along the way? Um, what is required of you or your organization or your collective to do in order to get the system from A to B? And could a social enterprise work? Could a social enterprise be part of that calculus? Could it be part of that journey? Um, is there a market for a good or a service that can be sold to a particular customer that's willing and able to pay? And you know, could there be a feasible operation that's um, that you know your team or that a team could be built around that they would um, have the resources to execute, um, and that there's actually viable economics to sustain that operation. So I'll leave you with those three questions. So best of luck in the rest of your conference. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Hopeful Economics Podcast, a ministry of the United Church of Canada, proudly supported by Mission and Service, and New Church Ministry of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in the United States and Canada. The Hopeful Economics Podcast is produced by Resonate Media. In the spirit of the unconference, we'd love to invite you into the conversation. Subscribe, review, and comment on our social media channels. A special thank you to those that partnered to make the Hopeful Economics possible. 1001 Worshiping Communities, Alterna, Buy Social, Faith and Finance, Metcalf Foundation, United Church of Christ, Rooted Good, Toronto Neighborhood Centers, Community Innovation Hub, and learn about Resonate Media at ResonateMediaPro.com. Thanks for listening and continue to share the blessings of health and wealth with everyone.